You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Have you ever heard the expression sine qua non? Nope. Okay, there's a no over there. All right. It's a Latin phrase. And its word-for-word translation is this. Without which not. Sine qua non. Without which not. And when you hear it like that, it just sounds kind of gibberish. Like it doesn't really make any sense. But it's, a, it's usefulness. is not in its word-for-word translation, but in its um, idiomatic expression. So as an expression, here's what it means. It means without something, this other thing is not possible. So what it's getting at is the first thing is uh, critically important for the next thing to happen. The first item is abs- it's an absolute necessity in order for the second thing to exist. So whatever that first thing is, it's fundamental. It's indispensable. And originally, this was used as a legal term, uh, particularly in matters of injury law. And so the idea is that you're trying to determine, you know, you have an injured party and you're trying to determine uh, the cause and responsibility of, uh, uh, that led to this injury. And so in other words, um, did the defendant's negligent act of omission or the act of commission lead to this plaintiff's injury? How responsible is this first act for the cause, the, 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 this effect of this person being injured? And so here's a, a little example that's often used when um, describing this phrase, sine qua non, in legal terms. Here it is. If Charlie had not left the keys in the ignition... His 10-year-old son could not have started the car and backed it over Polly's bike. Okay, so imagine this scenario. Charlie, this negligent father, has left the keys in the ignition. And his son has come and turned on the car and backed it up. And it ran over Polly's bike. And so the question is, is Charlie's negligent act to blame for this now broken bicycle? Do you see that? Do you see how we're looking at how responsible is this first act in terms of the effect? So without leaving the keys in the car, would the bike have gotten broken? Now today it's used in many different contexts. For example, uh, in business you might say a solid customer base is the sine qua non of success in business. If you're going to be successful, you've got to have a good customer base. Or uh, in politics, the president's endorsement was the sine qua non of the senator's re-election. So that statement is saying, listen, this senator got re-elected, but it was really this endorsement that led to the re-election. Or trust is the sine qua non for effective counseling. You think about the relationship between a counselor and a therapist and the, the counselee. If there's no trust, well, there's not going to be a good relationship there. Or wind is the sine qua non for flying a kite. You don't have wind, you cannot fly a kite. And if all of those examples 
evade you, here's one. Everyone will get. Chocolate chips are the sine qua non for chocolate chip cookies. You cannot have chocolate chip cookies without chocolate chips. You get it? The first thing is necessary in order for the other thing to exist. This morning, I want to look at the sine qua non of Christianity. It's the one thing that if you take it away, if you strip it away, you, you then uh, get rid of Christianity. If you take this one thing away, you strip Christianity of all of its meaning, all of its significance, all of its power. It's the one thing that if you take it away, Christianity becomes a complete waste of time, a rather silly hobby. So what is the indispensable, the essential the necessary condition of Christianity. What is the sine qua non of Christianity? The answer is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the sine qua non of the Christian faith. In fact, usually when I'm talking to someone who's uh, trying to decide if they want to become a Christian or to consider the claims of Christianity, I always go, look nowhere else except for the, the resurrection. It is the hinge of Christianity. Without it, the door of Christianity does not turn. It is the one claim that if it is true, then Christianity is true. All the other claims fall into place. If it is not true, then don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. If you take away the resurrection of Jesus, you take away Christianity. Without it, Christianity is not possible. R.C. Sproul said the resurrection of Jesus is radical in the original sense of the word. It touches the radix, the root of the Christian faith. Listen what he says. Without it, Christianity becomes just another religion designed to stimulate our moral senses with platitudes of human wisdom. If you take away the resurrection, all of a sudden the distinctiveness of Christianity fades away. So this Easter morning... We are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, specifically in verses 12 to 22, as Paul makes precisely this argument. He says, without the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity does not exist. But because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we have a lasting and a living hope. As we work through this text, we'll see three main movements. If you're a note taker, here they are. In verses 12 to 13, we'll see the centrality of the resurrection. That's going to be our first point. Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus is central to the Christian faith. Second, in verses 14 to 19, we'll see the consequences without the resurrection. He starts to unpack the, and says, if the resurrection is not true, here's all of the implications. Here's all of the consequences. Here's all the ways that it impacts and affects Christianity. We're going to look at six irrefutable consequences of a resurrectionless Christianity. Because some might say, well, what's the big deal? Can't we still have the, res- the Christianity, all the good that it has without this belief in this miracle? And Paul says, no, you can't. Third, in verses 20 to 22, we'll see the confidence of resurrection. Paul is... Um, very clear, and he states his absolute confidence in the resurrection of Jesus and the lasting and living hope that we have in Christ. So let's begin together in verse 12 to see the centrality of the resurrection. Here again, friends, the word of the Lord. 
Paul says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, if you're unfamiliar with 1 Corinthians, it is a letter. Paul, who had founded this church, is writing a letter to this church. He had led efforts to establish it. He had spent a significant amount of time there. In short, he knew this church really well. And there's uh, a, a lot of correspondence happening between Paul and this church. They're writing letters to him saying, hey, we've got these questions and there's these problems. And then Paul is responding to those. And 1 Corinthians is really Paul's uh, response to uh, another letter that we don't have of them asking all these questions. So Paul's laying out several things and answering um, questions that they had. And he was deeply invested. He loved this church. And so he writes this letter to address some of those areas of practice and theology that have sort of gotten off track. And in particular, as we get to this chapter, there were some in the church who had denied the resurrection of the dead. Now notice, they weren't denying the resurrection of Jesus outright. That wasn't their main claim. It was, uh, we, we don't believe in that, that we will be raised they were denying that believers will share in the resurrection of Jesus. Essentially, they were denying that bodily life after death was possible. Now let me give you a four to five minute crash course in Greek philosophy in the afterlife. Okay, because these were Greeks and so they're just deeply steeped in Greco-Roman philosophy, okay? So, uh, and, and it'll help you understand why it was hard for them to believe in bodily life after death. So for hundreds of years, Greek culture uh, had been influenced by the likes of some famous people you probably heard of. Plato, um, Aristotle, the Stoics, or the Epicureans. Any of those names sound familiar? Any of them? A few? Okay. So, this is, this is just what the culture would have been steeped in. Now, if you were a Greek, you had several options for what you could believe in in terms of uh, what happened to you when you died. So if you kind of took the Epicurean route, here's what you would have believed. You would have believed that the soul could not exist after its disillusion from the body, after it's been separated from the body. So in other words, when you die. When the body is separated from the soul, neither can exist and survive that cataclysmic event. See, for many Greeks and Romans, immortality, this whole just concept of life after death was simply unbelievable. In fact, if you were walking through a Greco-Roman graveyard at this time, um, you would have seen a, a very common inscription on the tombs. It would have said, I was not, I was I am not, I am free from wishes. You hear what that's communicating? I was not, I didn't, at one point I didn't exist, then, then I was, I existed for a little bit of time, and then I died, and guess what? I am not anymore, and I'm completely free of, 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 of any wishes, any desires, because I'm dead, like dead, dead, not existing anymore. I'm completely detached from this world. It was so common, in fact, that it would have been abbreviated. You know how... Um, we, we would do R.I.P., rest in peace. They had the same abbreviation, N-F-F-N-S-N-D. And, and if you wrote that on a tomb, 
Everyone knew exactly what that meant. Just like if you see RIP, you know what that means. They would have just put that on there. It was so common, so widely held that when you died, that was it. That was it. Aeschylus, a Greek playwright, said this. Once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. See, for those who subscribe to the Epicurean philosophy, life after death in any form was impossible. It's impossible. Now, some, of, some people didn't subscribe to that worldview, and so they might have gone along with the Stoics. See, they, had, uh, they, held, they held out some hope for life after death. Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, believed that there were two possible alternatives for when you die. Either the immortality of the soul or annihilation, which was kind of similar to the Epicurean uh, belief. So they would have said, listen, we're a little more optimistic. It may be that, we're, that we have no reason for optimism and when you die, you're dead, but maybe not. Maybe not. So Seneca wrote, death either annihilates us or strips us bare. If we are then released, there remains the better part, which is the body, after the burden has been withdrawn. If we are annihilated, nothing remains. Good and bad are alike removed. So the Stoics, they weren't certain on what happens to a person when they died. And so if you subscribe to this philosophical framework, you would have believed that the body is the bad part of us. The body is like a ticking time bomb of decay. And, right, and, 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 and the people in the room who are getting older go, yeah, that, that sounds just about right. You know, as you get older, things don't work like they should. And they believed that the body was like a cage for the soul. The soul was the good part of you, and it was, it, was, it was imprisoned inside the body. And so when you die, the body goes away, and then it frees your soul, the good part of you, for this life of uh, immortality. And so if there was immortality, if there is life, life after death, then it is a bodiless life. It's a life without a body. However... So the better part, the soul, would remain, and the bad part of you, the body, would have been thrown off. However, if the soul was not immortal, then they believed that when you died, death swallowed up all of you, both body and soul. Plato, he was more certain on the immortality of the soul. But like the Stoics, he believed that the body was a prison. In Plato's work, Phaedo, Socrates is teaching that the soul is immortal and that death is a release from the body. He wrote this, the soul is entirely fastened and welded to the body and is compelled to regard realities through the body as through prison bars. So imagine, you know, you're like, you know, those pictures of people, you know, they're in prison and they're looking through. He's like, that's what the soul is doing. It's encapsulated in this, in this, in this prison called the body and it's just waiting for the day when it will be released, okay? Homer, the Greek poet, not Homer Simpson, that's a different guy. He taught that the soul, he called it the vital breath, that it leaves the body at death and exists as a spectator separated from the world. And then it was in this impassable barrier that once you died, you could not really have contact with the living. So these are the options on the table. If you were Greek and you grew up in this time, some believed in total annihilation. When you die, you're dead and that's it. No existence or life after death. Or some people believe that when you died, your soul was now set free from this prison called your body. And it was now unbound and free from all the restraints of a body. Think of it like a snake skin. 
When the, when the snake sheds its skin, it's, it's free of it, and it's able to go about its day. And in a lot of ways, if you think about it, this is very similar to what people believe today. Some things just never change. A lot of people believe when you die, you die. That's it. You get your, you know, your shot at this life, you know, hopefully 80 some odd years. And then when you die, that's it. And then some people believe, well, there's got to be more. And so there, there's some kind of spiritual existence afterwards. Now, with all of that, think back to our Corinthian brothers and sisters in Christ. I think they believed in the resurrection of Jesus. Why do I believe that? Well, Paul hammered it in his preaching, and they had become Christians. He tells us a few verses earlier. He says, I would remind you, brothers, he's telling them, remember, I told you this, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received. What did they receive? In which you stand. What were they standing in? What were they being saved by? If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Again, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what, you, what I also received. So Paul's saying, you received this. What did they receive? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So they believed in the resurrection of Jesus. If they hadn't believed in that, and that's what was being taught, Paul would have said, hey, you guys have missed. You've missed it. They believed the gospel that Jesus had died for our sins, was buried, and was raised. In fact, Paul preached this gospel so fiercely. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. He preached Christ crucified and Christ risen so fiercely that oftentimes people thought he was preaching about two separate gods. They thought Paul is coming around preaching about this God named Jesus and this other God named Anastasis. Because that's the Greek word for resurrection. He preached Christ and his resurrection so boldly people thought, are those two different gods? In fact, in, in Acts 17, verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, those people I just told you all about, they were also conversing with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And right there where it says the resurrection is the Greek word anastasis. And do you see they said... Uh, he's preaching foreign divinities, plural. Paul's preaching two gods. They thought he was preaching about this one God named Jesus and this other God named Anastasis. That's how, that's how boldly Paul preached the resurrection. However, resurrection was so utterly inconceivable to them as he was preaching about it. They thought, well, it can't, he can't be talking about someone being raised from the dead because nobody does that. So he must be talking about some other God. But the Corinthians had come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Through Paul's preaching, they had come to believe that Jesus had conquered the grave and rose again. And this gave them hope for life after death. However, they still couldn't quite wrap their minds around how the resurrection of Jesus was connected to their resurrection. And so this false theology started to uh, permeate the church where they believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but not in their own resurrection. And they hadn't quite considered the logical implications of what would happen if they denied bodily resurrection. And so that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about. He is unpacking for them a whole chapter explaining how the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of believers are inextricably linked. 
And he's also teaching against this idea that our bodies are bad. That, that, that was just so pervasive in Greco-Roman culture that our bodies were a prison. He's saying, no, no, no. The glory of Christianity is that our bodies are a good gift from God that will one day be redeemed and raised as well. The body's not a prison. The body is a gift. That's what it means to be human. Both body and soul. Both are important. Both are, are, uh, are, are what it means to be human. The body and the soul are not inharmonious parts of unequal value. Rather, they, they're both, they work together, and they're both incredibly valuable. So don't miss this. This, th- th- this is very common in our Christian circles today. Most people, when they think of life after death, they think of going to heaven when you die to live in a bodiless, floaty, immaterial existence. But that is not the Christian hope. Christianity is about full life after death. A life where all of you, body and soul, is redeemed. Where all of you, not just your soul is raised, but your body is raised as well. Where all of you is set free, both body and soul, to live with Christ in full newness of life. And to make his point, Paul says, brothers and sisters, the resurrection of the dead is inextricably linked to the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection with him is central to Christianity. And so here's what Paul says. He goes, if you deny the resurrection of the dead, the implication is, and he even says it explicitly, that then Jesus himself is not raised from the dead. If you deny this truth, you're actually denying the central truth of the Christian faith is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And he says, and if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then Christianity's got problems. You and I have problems. Because the resurrection of Jesus is the sine qua non of Christianity. If you take that away, then you're left with nothing. And that's exactly where Paul goes next. So what he's doing is helping them think through the logical implications of what they believe. Now he's going to draw six implications of what happens if you remove resurrection of Jesus from Christianity. So let's look at verse 14. Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Now as we start to unpack Paul's logic here, it's important to understand what Paul is doing. He is helping them understand the logical implications of their beliefs. See, a lot of times we think beliefs are benign. You can believe whatever you want and it has no consequences. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Did you know, right now, all of your desires, all of your behaviors are being informed and driven and shaped by beliefs. Beliefs behind everything you do. Now, you may not always be consciously aware of them. But everything you will do this week is being informed by a belief system. All of it. And you can walk it backwards and find the why behind the what. Beliefs are not benign. They're incredibly consequential for our lives. They're not disconnected. Rather, they're intimately connected. So here's what happens. If you have wrong beliefs, it will lead to wrong desires, which will lead to wrong behaviors. 
It always works that way. It's how you're hardwired. I don't even have to know you to know that. Simply because you're human, that's how you work. That's how I work. And conversely, right beliefs lead to right desires, lead to right behaviors. And if you like fancy terms and want to sound smart this week, here's how you could say it. Orthodoxy, which means right thinking, leads to orthopathy, which is right feelings, right beliefs, or right, right desires, which leads to orthopraxy, right doing. Orthodoxy leads to orthopathy, leads to orthopraxy. Now, the first consequence that Paul talks about here of a resurrectionless Christianity is that our preaching is pointless. If there is no resurrection, then preaching is pointless. Now think about it. Paul has devoted the latter part of his life to preaching Christ crucified. So if there is no resurrection, then he has completely wasted his time. And not only his life, but all the other apostles as well. All the businesses they left behind, the, the, the things they stopped doing to start preaching, all of it has been a complete and total waste of time. And not only have they wasted their time, but all the persecution they faced, all the suffering, all the tribulations, all of it has been pointless. It's insignificant. That word in vain literally means empty. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is empty. In other words, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then there's nothing to proclaim. If the tomb isn't empty, then our preaching is empty. That's what Paul's saying. Second consequence is that our faith is in vain. Not only is our preaching in vain, but our faith is in vain. You see that in the second half of verse 14. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no foundation for our faith. Commentator David Pryor writes this. Take out the resurrection of Jesus, and there is nothing left on which to rest faith. Only the decomposing corpse of an itinerant Jewish carpenter turned rabbi. If Jesus died and stayed dead, then our faith is built on a decomposing corpse. Faith is only as good as the object that you put it in, right? If Jesus died and stayed dead, then the substance of Christianity is gone. A resurrectionless Christianity can give you some good moral principles. It can give you some good platitudes, but that's all. And at that point, Christianity just kind of blends in to other moral systems of the world. But our big problem is not that we don't know the rules or, or that we don't understand morality. Our big problem is that we, can't, we haven't quite figured out how to live at peace with one another. That's not our problem. Our big problem is we're terrible at following the rules. We know the rules. We're just incapable of following them. We know what good morals are. We just stink at being good moral people. Why? Because we have a sin problem. That's our problem. And a dead Savior is no Savior at all. And Paul's going to pick up that point again in, in a future verse. But before he does, he gives us another consequence of Christianity without resurrection. Look at verse 15. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Here's third consequence. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then the apostles are imposters who have misrepresented God. Acts chapter 2 
gives us an example of the kind of sermons that the apostles were preaching following the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Let me give you a snippet. Acts 2, verse 23 and 24. He said, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Then listen to what he says. God raised him up. You hear what they're saying? They're saying God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you hear what Peter was saying in that sermon? He was saying, you crucified Jesus, but God raised him up. But think about it. If God didn't actually raise him up, then they're misrepresenting God. They're telling people that God did something that God did not do. Do you see the implication there? That's a big problem. But then he gives us a fourth consequence. He says, we are still condemned in our sins. Verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, listen to what he said. Here's the implication. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now Paul picks back up that conversation about our faith being futile. He restates the logic just in case he missed anybody, in case people fell asleep. He says, hey, hey don't forget, if, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen up. You are still in your sins. Friends, if we are still in our sins, meaning we are still identified by our sins, still condemned by our sins, then we have no hope. Our problem has not been solved. Do you know the only difference between a sinner and a saint? You know what the difference is? It's not that saints haven't sinned. It's not even that saints don't still sin. It's that they've had their sins paid for by Jesus Christ. But if Christ has not been raised, then our sins have not been paid for. See, if Jesus died and stayed dead, then his sacrifice was deemed unacceptable. And we are still in our sins. Don't miss this. Romans 6 teaches that the wages of sin is death. We earn death for our sins. In other words, sin inevitably produces death as the final consequence for sin. So let me walk out this logic for you. If Jesus died and stayed dead, then there's only two possible conclusions. Either, number one, he wasn't the sinless person everyone thought him to be. And so that when he died and stayed dead, he was receiving the just consequence for his sin. Or he was a sinless savior, but for whatever reason, his attempts to atone for our sin failed. He went to the cross sinless, but for whatever reason, he failed as a savior. And we are still in our sins. The result is the same either way. That we are still in our sins, condemned, guilty, and cut off from God. If Christ died and stayed dead, then death's sting remains. But Paul tells us in Romans 4 that Christ was raised for our justification. That his resurrection is connected to our being declared righteous before God. His resurrection is what enables forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is not simply a matter of the death of Christ on the cross, which it is, but it's also a matter of Christ being raised from the dead. And that's why Paul will go on in Romans 6 to say that we're able to walk in newness of life because Jesus himself was raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our sin problem has no solution and we are condemned. 
fifth consequence of Christianity without resurrection is that our loved ones who have died are truly dead. Verse 18, Paul says, Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You see Paul drawing out this implication? If we are dead in our sins, not only are we doomed to be defeated by death, but all of those we've loved who have died before in Christ, not only are they dead, but they'll never be raised as well. They'll be perished, and we will never be reunited with them. Any hope we have of seeing our loved ones again is gone because the sting of death remains. And finally, in verse 9, Paul gives us a sixth consequence, that we have no hope beyond this short, cruel life. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, meaning no life beyond the grave, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection, then there's no reason anyone should have confidence of life beyond death. All we have is what this world has to offer. And at the end of the day, there's no real meaning, no real point to anything. Even if you are an awesome person, and they make like statues about you, and there's biographies written about you, how long does it take before your legacy fades? How long before your accomplishments are forgotten? How long before your biography goes from being a bestseller to being out of print? Eventually, it happens to everyone. How many generations go by before you are completely forgotten? It only takes a few generations before the memories of you are completely wiped off the face of the earth. So everything you accomplish, everything you are about, all of it is meaningless. If in this life is the only place we have to hope. If the resurrection is false, then Karl Marx was right. That Christianity is nothing more than an opioid for the masses to placate us until we die a meaningless death. Paul's logic is irrefutable. Without resurrection, Christianity is simply a lame hobby, a powerless lie, a faulty foundation. Without resurrection, our preaching is empty. Our faith is futile. We are imposters, misrepresenting God, still dead in our sins. Our loved ones who have died before us will never see them again, never be reunited. And soon we will die too, and eventually even our memories will fade. If that's true, then hope is stupid. We should just stop talking about it all together. And life is ultimately meaningless, pointless, and really a cruel experiment. See, the consequences of Christianity without resurrection are not inconsequential. In fact, without it, there is no Christianity. Paul has shown us the centrality of the resurrection, and now he's shown us the consequences of a resurrectionless Christianity. Now look at verse 20. Here's the hope of Easter morning. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you see that Paul represents the resurrection of Jesus as a fact? He says, but in fact. Not a myth, but verifiable history. It's not urban legend. It's actually, if you think about it, how he begins the chapter. If you were to go back and read the first 11 verses, Paul is showing how the resurrection of Jesus is verifiable 
history. He tells us that following the resurrection, Jesus appeared to Peter and the 12 apostles. And then he appeared to over 500 people at one large gathering. Now, why is this important? So what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. He says, then he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Listen to this. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So of those 500 people, most of them are still alive. Why is that important? Well, Paul's saying, listen, uh, you could go talk to them. It's verifiable. Scholars from conservative to progressive all agree that this letter, 1 Corinthians, not only was written by Paul, but, but was written about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So when the people are reading this, it's about 20 years later. Now think about that. Paul's saying there are still some people alive today who saw the resurrected Jesus. You can go talk to them about it. You know why? Because it wasn't that long ago. Think about what happened 22 years ago that people all remember. 9-11. 9-11 happened about 22 years ago, which is about the exact same time that the resurrection happened from when the people were reading this letter. Do you know there are still people alive today who were there, right there in New York City, who survived? You can go talk to first responders, people who lived there who can tell you what happened, right? If you're going, I don't believe that 9-11 happened, it's like him saying, there are a lot of people who are still alive who were there. You can go talk to them. It's verifiable history. It's not science. You can't repeat it. That's what science is good at. Science is looking at things that are observable and repeatable. But you know what science is terrible at? History. History about things that happened. And there's a different way you go to verify historical events. You don't apply the scientific method to history. Everybody knows that. But if you want to figure out if something happened, you go talk to people who were there, who were eyewitnesses, who can verify the facts of the account. That's what Paul is doing. He's not bluffing. He's saying, listen, if you're skeptical, be skeptical. But go talk to the people who were there and they'll tell you they saw him raised. They'll tell you what happened. The apostles who were still alive at this time saw Jesus crucified. They know he was put in the tomb. They'll tell you. And afterwards there was a guy named Nicodemus who was a Pharisee who at once didn't believe but then believed. And there was a rich guy named Joseph of Arimathea. They saw to it that Jesus was spared the usual burial of a crucified criminal. Do you know how they usually buried those who were, those who were crucified? Answer, they didn't. Most of the time, they left you to rot on the cross, to be scavenged by wild animals. It was essentially a billboard for the Roman Empire to say, this is what happens when you get out of line. You get out of line, and you can find yourself on a cross. You want to be pecked apart by, by scavengers? If you don't, then fall in line. And if they were buried, they were all thrown into unmarked mass graves. Those are your two options if you're crucified in the Roman Empire. But two men had the boldness and courage to walk up to Pontius Pilate, who could have had them crucified even for coming to them, and said, can we take the body? And Pilate, who could have said, get out of here, said, yes. 
highly unlikely that other than the sovereign hand of God where that would have happened. And he's placed in a rich man's tomb to fulfill a prophecy that was written about him 700 years before. Isaiah prophesied that the risen Savior would be placed in a rich man's tomb. And he and Nicodemus saw to it that Jesus was buried. And after he rose again, in the weeks that followed after that first Sunday, Jesus, Paul tells us, appeared to the disciples. He appeared to over 500 people at one time. And Paul is saying, if you want to verify it, go talk to them. They're still alive. Go talk to them. They can tell you what they saw. This isn't a myth. It's not urban legend. It's verifiable history. It's a fact. And what's more, from the Gospels we learn that the resurrected Jesus first appeared to women. It's one of my favorite things about the resurrection here. Their names, they're written down so we would remember them. Joanna, Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Salome, and another Mary. Why is this significant? In this culture, the testimony of women were inadmissible in court. They were considered hysterical, plagued by emotion, prone toward exaggeration. In short, in the ancient world, women were considered unreliable. Now, of course, that's not accurate and true of women, but that's what they believed. That's what they thought. And it makes, all, it makes it all the more significance that the first witnesses to the resurrected Jesus were women. They were women. Now listen, if this were a conspiracy theory, if you were making this up and you wanted the maximum amount of people to believe you, would you choose the most unreliable people to be the first eyewitnesses? Of course not. Of course not. It would make no sense. You'd want it to be someone respectable. Be like, you know, he saw, oh, well, he's so believable. Okay, I believe him. But what the, what the gospel writers wrote, it was women who saw him. And not even prominent women. Just your average, everyday woman. Now, why would the gospel writers write that? Because it's true. It's what happened. Celsus, a second century Greek philosopher, writes this. After death, Jesus rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. But who saw this? He's making this argument. Listen, a hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other ones of those who were deluded by the same sorcery. Friends, we often think ancient people are stupid and gullible, like they'll just believe anything. That's not the case. Here's a guy shortly after going, the resurrection? Yeah, I don't believe it. Who were the first witnesses? Women? Yeah, I really don't believe it now. Now, Celsus would not have been a popular guy in our day and age, right? But he's just communicating what most people thought at that time. The only reason the gospel writers testified and wrote that women were the first to the tomb, that women were the first to see Jesus, is because that's what happened. That's what happened. And in fact, Paul says, you can go and verify it. He says, I myself saw the resurrected Jesus. Paul saw him after Christ had ascended. You can read about Paul's life in Acts chapter 9, this conversion experience. 
you know anything about Paul, you know that before he saw the resurrected Jesus, he was hell-bent on persecuting Christians, throwing them in prison, often giving the thumbs up on their execution. What would change a man who had a singular mission to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth to then have an about face and go be one of the greatest preachers and church planters of all time? It's because he saw the resurrected Jesus. One minute, he's persecuting Christians, torturing them to shut up, and the next minute, he's giving his very life to preach Christ and him crucified. Friends, his confidence wasn't in himself, but in the fact that Jesus died but didn't stay dead. And that fact has implications for you and me. Look what he says in verse 21. Because the resurrection is true, he says, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Paul's tying it all back together. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So Paul's come full circle. He states the matter plainly. He says, remember, death entered into the world through one man, Adam. When Adam and Eve sinned, death intruded into our world. His sin opened the door for death to come in and steal all of life's joy. But he says, there is a man, Jesus Christ, who has closed the door on death through his resurrection. You remember Job's question? Job chapter 14. He says, if a man dies, shall he live again? Everybody asks this question. Is there life after death? What happens when you die? If a man dies, can he live again? Paul's answer is yes. In Christ, all those who believe in him shall be made alive. In a moment of history, Job's question was, question was answered once and for all. Because Jesus was raised, you and I can be raised. And because he lives, you and I can face any tomorrow. The resurrection of Jesus sets him apart from every other central religious figure in the world. Friends, Buddha is dead. He died and stayed dead. Muhammad is dead. He died and stayed dead. Confucius is dead. He died and stayed dead. And you can list any other name, any other figure of every world religion died and stayed dead. All were sinners in need of a savior. Every other religion says, do your best, work hard, and maybe there's a chance you can have some sort of life beyond the grave. But Christianity says something bolder. It says, Christ has died for your sins. He paid the penalty. And what's more, when he died, he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead, proving once and for all that his sacrifice was pleasing to the Lord. And that united to him, you and I can be more than conquerors. Paul's hope and confidence was not in a dead Savior, but in a resurrected, risen Savior. Friends, as we close, you remember all those negative consequences Paul walked through? In a resurrectionless Christianity, I want to flip those around as we close so you hear all the positive consequences of a true resurrected Christianity. See, because Christ was raised from the dead, believers can look forward to the day when Christ will return and resurrect all of those who are united to him. Because Christ was raised from the dead, preaching the gospel is fruitful and has power to save. Because Christ was raised from the dead, our faith stands on solid ground. 
Because Christ was raised from the dead, our sins are forgiven. And the sting of death is gone. Because Christ was raised from the dead, death is a defeated foe. And we will one day be reunited with our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. And because Christ was raised from the dead, our hope is real. And one day, our faith will be made sight. Our hopes will be realized. See, because Christ is raised from the dead, you and I can face anything that today has to offer, anything that tomorrow has to offer. The resurrection is the sine qua non of Christianity. And that's why Paul ends this chapter boldly proclaiming our lasting and living hope. I'll close with the end of 1 Corinthians. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray.